That's a pretty good tune we got there, Tony, for our opening and our closing. But you know what I like better? What's that? What's that? <laughs> You've been waiting all week to say that. All week. That's not annoying, right? <laughs> it's better when I do it than John Williams. I'm, I can see you as a child running around <laughs> just screaming that. Like there's a party downstairs. Like a 70s style party downstairs and you come running out and just like. And then, and then mom, the alien came out and, and he went on the ship and then. Well, it's like, I know Maddie, I took you to the movie. That's literally going to be this episode. What I just did. <laughs> and then Spielberg gets the guys and they sound really real. How could it not be that though? Cause it's clearly that for, I'm so giddy right now. Oh. I'm really giddy. I'm giddy. I've been nervous about this in a whole new way because I get nervous before our shows. But this was a different kind of nervous. This was like we've not we have never covered anything close to this yet. This is like there are, in my opinion, there are like, you know, I, I don't want to give a number to it. Maybe what, 20 like, you know, spear in the ground <laughs> like this is a this is a classic. This is a meaningful film to me. It's, uh, you know, I get hurt when people pick on it, like kind of thing. Like I uh -oh. love it. And, um, and so, but it's in a different way. Cause it's just, it's just, just so wrapped up in, in my childhood. Well, that's a wonderful introduction to today's episode, which by the way, is a two parter. And we are going to do close encounters of the third kind today. Uh, a classic like you said, a, a tentpole film in the paranormal realm, perhaps the goat. We'll have that discussion a little later, I think. Uh, but it's one of two parts because we have a special announcement about part two. Yes. And someone who is going to join us for our discussion about part two, which we will unveil to you later in the podcast. We're yeah. very excited about it. Put it that Just way. Just to whet your appetite. We got something fun coming. Um, and this movie really is, it deserves a two-part thing. Agreed. Like a lot of these big films. I mean, we, we'd we like to think about doing maybe two-parters for a lot of these like really big behemoth films that are like, you know, they've been part of the conversation for paranormal movies since since like the 60s or 70s. Yes. So, yeah. A, a friend of mine, Jerry Thornton, I was... Uh, texting back and forth with him. And he said, I know people who consider this film to be the goat for them of all time, any genre, not just paranormal, um, mm -hmm. which is, which is impressive. So, yeah. uh, but before we get into the film, Tony, let's catch up on some business. Um, we did hear from some people on last week. Uh, you had a great moment last week and last week's episode. We reviewed the documentary close encounters, of the fifth kind, which made me think to do this week, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's if you did not, uh, because we heard from several fans. Uh, I heard from Dan Shackner, who's the Puppy Bowl ref. He's famous for that on the Animal Planet. He said he- Dan, yeah. Yeah, you know Danny. He spit out his coffee, basically, when you said uh, the thing about Jerry Piven at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we heard from Superfan Kerrig, who said that he was in traffic going to work and was driving in his commute because he listens to us at his morning commute. And he said nice. that he, he, the people in the car next to him looked at him like he was insane. And when they were afraid <laughs> he was going to run into them because he <laughs> laughed so hard. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Let's go back and listen to that, just that moment real quick. This is when I asked you uh, where the documentary went wrong for you. The minute Jeremy Piven started to talk, 
which is the first thing that happens in the movie. So yeah, <laughs> I stand by it. <laughs> what can I say? I have I don't have second thoughts. So if you know any personal injury attorneys in your area, you might want to call <laughs> them and uh, say that it was Tony and Maddie's fault that you got yes. the fender bender. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Well, they're getting into accidents. Oh, uh, yeah. Mission accomplished. You're right, Tony. That's uh, if we can cause fender benders, we're doing our job. I love it. We really have done our job. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to take care of a little piece of business. This is paranormal breaking news. This is a P4P exclusive. Let's hit the sounder. P4P news. We re- uh, P- Oh, no. Maybe we should call it PNN. Paranormal News Network. PNN News. Don't, we report. You decide. Don't edit any of that out. That was just so good. Don't I just, edit a thing. Well, you know what I did? I cocked <laughs> that up. I mixed up like Fox and CNN. Like I took their both or mixed it them together. It was whatever you did. Just bottle it. Keep it. <laughs> do it again. P for P news. We re- uh, P. <laughs> That's great. Um, Tony, you received an article from a friend of yours, a coworker of yours, actually a colleague of yours. Mm-hmm. That is. Really mind-blowing and very important. And I just wanted to spend a couple minutes on this because, you know, it is a paranormal podcast at the end of the day, even though we focus on paranormal media, uh, the entertainment world of paranormal in a way. But this is just too big to not talk about. Tony, what article were you sent? And just tell us a little bit about it. Um, I was uh, sent an article uh, by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jackson, who did the the score and music for the movie that you and I did, uh, Sender which hopefully will come out one day. And, um, (laughs) and, uh, exactly. I'm starting to think that there may be alien interference. Um, this was a vice article that he, that he sent, that he texted to me and Michael, uh, my, you know, partner in the movie and, um, you know, Michael and, um, wow, did this article freak me out? I'm not, I'm not like a, you know, vice nut i don't read everything they do but uh this seems fairly unassailable um the article is called found page 25 of the cia's gateway report on astral projection uh and the byline is and wow does it really tie the universe together and and it kind of distills what's in this report which is embedded in there you can actually go to this article and and like there's a PDF in that embedded in that site. And then you can download the actual government document, which is like about 40 pages or so of single spaced crammed with information, classic, you know, letterhead from, <laughs> from the government. That's what it is. It's, it's a, it's an actual government. Um, I don't, I, you know, honestly, I don't know if this is leaked. I think it's actually part of uh divulge you know the, the freedom of information freedom of information stuff the remarkable thing is that that whoever wrote this and spent the time to research this and did the scientific investigation of what they're discussing believed some of the most out there stuff you could ever imagine so basically what did the cia do and what do they believe it's it's everything that you have read in in any religion or shamanic uh, philosophy or stories about people, you know, who are deep meditators and have out-of-body experiences um, in what they call the astral body. That's the new age term for it. Well, it's not actually any more new age term. It's now a military term or a government accepted term. The idea that 
somebody could leave their physical body with their consciousness completely intact and travel interdimensionally um, outside the known universe in the sphere of what they call the absolute, which is got deep religious and philosophical connotations because they're talking about now things that every, pretty much every major religion was, has been talking about. The force is actually what they're kind of calling it. They're kind of alluding to this force from Star Wars being actually kind of the best description of what reality actually is or contains. And they go, there, there are diagrams, there are mathematical equations. This is a really deep piece of paper that I can't read all. I don't understand all of it, but if you, if you really just try to get through it, the things that they're talking about, it's, uh, I've never really read anything like it. It's, it's, it, it kind of, it's, it's, it's more shocking than anything from just the UFO world. Cause this kind of, this kind of touches all of it, which is interesting. Cause I was talking about Jacques Vallée, I guess it was last week. Yeah. Yeah. He came up last week, of course. And he's related to close encounters of the third kind as well, of course, which we'll talk about, but you know, his description of this being, and also Mothman prophecy book, you mm. know, the description of high strangeness being interconnected with all of these different branches of the supernatural and that they're actually the paranormal is like it's one kind of one kind of event that we are starting to understand exists in these in this absolute space where the, the speed of light for instance m makes no difference it's 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 instantaneous travel it would be the way in which space travel could happen interstellar space travel it could be the way that people like Stephen Greer say they can contact aliens mentally. Speed of thought. Speed of thought. That's now, mm. and this paper was from like 85 or something. This isn't, you know, so th whatever they've been researching, I'm sure the understanding has deepened since then. It's, it's just unbelievable, man. So I mean, I, I've never, if I could, if like I could it. nutshell it, oh God, Jesus. Don't say, don't, that we could edit out. <laughs> oh my God. We could God. totally, oh my happily God. lose that one. Why did you say that? Because that was in, the, all right, I'm going to be better than that. I'm not going to make that <laughs> joke. Let's all try to collectively just be better. If I could put that into a nutshell, um, <laughs> do you know how many... All right, no, I'm not going to say it. I want to say it so bad, but that's the old me. This is the new evolved <laughs> Colts Encounters me. Um, okay. Okay, so if I were to put this into a nutshell, this document basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, proves, if it's legit, which we're going to say it is for the sake of this discussion, it proves that the government was partaking in, exploring with, experimenting in, and believes in, or says exists, another realm that you can get to through astral projection or through meditation, mm -hmm. that there's something beyond mm -hmm. the body. And they're saying this exists. Mm -hmm. It's real. We've done it. Mm -hmm. And to travel into zones wherein you will also potentially meet, um, weird, intelligent, uh, I don't know what even to call it. Non, non-physical intelligent life. The absolute is what they're talking about. You know, like, and they talk about physics in this in a way that's very interesting. Mm. You know, uh, a light beam, for instance, mm -hmm. travels at a certain rate of speed and it oscillates at a certain rate. You know, it, it, the, 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 uh, 
the atomic. I, I'm not a physicist, and you will please cut this part out. <clears throat> <laughs> but you did stay at Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, you know, particles of light travel in, at one speed, and they oscillate. They vibrate like everything does. All matter is at a vibratory rate um, and at different rates. And the up and down of the oscillations, they say, are in the absolute. Okay. When the particle reaches its top zenith on its oscillation and changes course to go down, there's a gap. There's a tiny gap wherein it doesn't exist anywhere where it is actually in the absolute, wherein anything is possible. And then it goes down the trajectory back on its oscillation. And when it hits the midpoint again, it's back in our reality. And then it goes back. So particle wave, which is which the wave part, <laughs> the absolute part is crazy, <laughs> Maddie. It's crazy. And I, you know, it's so out there that, you know, you're pinching yourself. You're like, well, maybe this document isn't, isn't real. Isn't, you have to read it. it. If it's if it's all faked, it's it's the most deep faked, well written, intense piece of writing you could imagine. And if it's even partially true, any one part of this document will blow your mind. Any one fraction of it will 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 change your your outlook on life. I I, I really think so. More to the point. You're, you're right. Yes, they may have believed they experimented. They did. They ran programs for years and are still running them. They are spending and have spent millions and millions, maybe billions of dollars on this research. I don't think anybody does that unless there's some truth that they're willing to spend that money on. And from our perspective as a paranormal podcast that deals in specifically, we're not just a paranormal podcast. There's plenty of those out there. We talk about paranormal film and television. So I want to make mm -hmm. that close that gap because we've talked about things like the men who stare at goats, uh, right. which was basically a kind of form of this, the government, the military trying to figure out how to weaponize or rather use ESP. Um, we talked about possessor and possessor uncut about, a, again, a, a program that uses mind assassins, you know, to, to infiltrate your mind, things like that. So, and then I'm thinking in this document, it's referred to as the absolute. I'm thinking right now, isn't it strange? We have shows like Stranger Things that call this dimension the upside down. And in that show, you see a portal open up run by a secret government something or, or private agency. They open up a portal to paranormal weirdness, to creatures and they call that in the show, the upside down. And you have a government document from 1985 calling it the absolute. I mean, that is, and that feeds into this movie, Heineck working on this movie. What secrets did he give to Spielberg? So it all kind of ties together. It, it does. Yeah. Um, particularly in terms of like space travel, the potential for it and how we might visit or be visited by other people, you know, who are so far away that they can't get here through normal normal means mm. um, because no crafts we can build can really go faster than the speed of light. It's just not a thing. And, Shut but up. there is apparently ways to do it um, that they may not fully understand yet, but they seem, they seem to understand that the principles are at work. And um, 
it's 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 pretty crazy when you combine this with other documents that have come forward uh, with with the ufo disclosure stuff that's happening i mean Hmm. it's you know you start to you can start to pick and choose what is too maybe out there for you to want to believe but where do you start and where do you stop i mean it really becomes a question of like it feels like almost we're all in at this point i mean you know what i mean i I, well and at the risk of oversharing uh and I don't know, I don't like to get too, too personal, but I spend time every morning in, in what you would call meditative state. And mine comes through the filter and prism, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, it comes through a certain faith prism. Okay. But I've had moments where I, and I know you have too, you've mentioned on this podcast yourself that you meditate. Um, I've had very powerful experiences where I don't feel like I was there, um, in my body, in my little mm-hmm. prayer chair, as I call it. I feel like I was out looking at myself and uh, and had very powerful spiritual experiences feeling like I'm not in this body. Um, I had one as a kid. I got very sick and I felt like I was over my body. Look, I felt like I was touching my ceiling of my bed right above my bed, like the stucco, the white stucco. I was, I was probably seven or eight. I can s- still see it like it was yesterday. You know, yeah. touching, I went to actually touch the stucco of my ceiling and then kind of realized in my mind, I'm sick in bed right now. You know what I mean? So yeah, uh, there's, there's, you know, to your point, what I'm trying to say is if you don't believe in this stuff, I would suggest you try to be quiet for 20 minutes a day and see what happens if you want to believe in it and you don't, and you're all worldly and you're tied to your phone and everything. See for yourself. Yeah. I mean, these distractions really are hard, you know, it's hard to get through the day without being too distracted to really quiet down enough to try to sense what might be happening. It sounds kind of boring at first. And I get that. Um, I don't know. I found, and I'm I'm not like a champion meditator, but I really do try to adhere to a a practice if I can, you know, it goes up and down like anything else. But when, um, when I'm involved in that, it has a really good impact on my life in ways that are way beyond that 20 minutes of sitting, of sitting. It, it, it really is remarkable. And a lot like going to the gym, you can, you can forget like, or well, I'll put it off or there's other things that are more important. But the, the more I get into this and in fact, like doing the research on this show and stuff has kind of brought me back to a little bit of like interest in kind of reaffirming. We don't have the same technical name for our faith. I don't sure. know what I call mine, but I feel much better in my life. Satanism. Thank you. That's the, I was looking for it. Yes. Devil worship. Oh God. It makes me feel so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's why we get along so good. Well, this is fantastic. Salt and pepper. <laughs> yeah. Oil and, oil and water, baby. Um, this is fantastic. Thank you for that. If anyone, you know, we'll link to the article, which for sure really means I'll probably say we will. And then I'll just end up watching golf videos. I'm not linked to it. No, let's really do it this time because I've done this, that like eight times. I didn't I didn't describe this you know with enough like technical acumen to make anybody go like, "Wow, that's incredible." Just check it out. Check this link out. Check this article out. And and if you if you have opinions, get back to us on it because we I'd yes. really be interested to hear what other people have to say about it. Please, cuz it's really earth-shattering. It's a government document saying we know this plane exists and it's real. I mean, that's, 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 that everybody should be talking about that. They shouldn't be talking about whether the friggin', you know, whatever, whatever people are talking about now. I don't want to say whatever got trapped in the Suez canal for a week like that. It's like, yeah, 
Three masks or four? How about the fact that there's a fucking astral plane that you can see fucking Bigfoot and the government knows about? (laughs) A boat doing a K-turn parking job gets front page news while, you know, we've realized that Uh, all paranormal weirdness is verifiable. All right. Well, here's a verifiable fact. The film we are about to do is an all-timer. And we are going to dive into it right now. I could talk about Close Encounters for an entire season of podcasting. I mentioned we have a big announcement in regards to what'll be part two of this podcast, our second part of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You were listening to the first half. I was actually wrong. We actually have two announcements. So let's do those now before we dive into the film, because I think this is really cool. Okay. The first one is, um, for those of you who follow us on Facebook, we are going to change the name of our Facebook page, not the podcast. We're going to change the name of the Facebook page because we are going to start producing uh, paranormal-themed content that will live beyond and separate from this podcast. Tony and I have been working on a group of what we think are incredibly awesome paranormal film and television-themed memes and maybe some live videos that we'll do from time to time, like when Tony gets an article like this, we might react to it on our Facebook page live. So we're going to kind of try to make the tent a little bigger, call it something else. So if you follow us on Facebook, do not worry. And if you just buy this handy app, (laughs) we'll be happy to enlighten you. Okay, let's just come up. Jeremy (laughs) Piven is hosting our Facebook page. No, no, no. We're just simply changing. Here's what we're doing. We're changing the name of our Facebook page and we're offering more content. That's all. So you'll start seeing awesome memes like we just released in reference to this episode. We released Bash Potatoes meme for those of you who saw it on social media at Rated Paranormal. So that's one half of the announcement. And the reason I bring it up now is because a lot of our memes feature Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's what a big movie this is to us. Yeah, for so sure. So we're going to start pumping out content like that. We want you to share it. You know, if we put out a funny meme and you're like, yeah, that is cool, share it with your friends. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to widen the tent. So that's a- if we put out a meme that you don't think is that funny, share it with your friends. Tell them it's funny and share it with your friends. That's basically what we're asking. We want you to astro project. <laughs> and sh- astro project. <laughs> what I say? Astro project. That's <laughs> like the sports Ast- version Ast- of astro. We want you to astral project on astroturf. Yeah. Uh, I was going to start riffing on a joke there, and then I realized I don't know enough sports terms to actually riff on a joke, so I just stopped. (laughs) That would make it even funnier, though. But that's what makes it so grand. All right. (laughs) So, yeah, change the name of our Facebook page. We're going to start pumping out content for you to share, just quick, digestible, funny, interesting, thought-provoking memes, things like that. Yeah, stuff that's currently in the news, that's popping up, that we notice. Boom. So that's one. Number two is in part two of this podcast, next week, we will be talking to one of the actual stars 
of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Mr. Bob Balaban, will be on this podcast, and he will have the distinction of being our very first guest. And Tony, I can't think of a better person to have as our first guest. No, it, it's it's so perfect uh, that he'd be our first guest, that he'd come on the show at all. It's oh. just, it's amazing. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. And I have to thank you for that. I mean, this is next level. Hey, look, I get I get a chance to talk to Bob. I've never, you know, I know Bob a little bit, but I've never, I, I know him for a long time. I've known him since I was one years old. Wow. Let's put it that way. My God. Um. Yeah, he worked with my my dad uh, back in the day, and they remained friendly. And so I've just known him for forever, but I've never sat and talked to him about Close Encounters. Like, I've been a little shy to do it, you know? Sure. So this is really cool. Like, I've, I've never I've never talked to him about it. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Well, too. his name will come up a bunch today, I'm sure, as we talk about the movie. And then to be able to speak to him. So definitely make sure, if you listen to this episode, make sure you listen to next week because we're going to talk about the scenes that Bob was in, I'm sure, and then literally be able to ask him specifically about moments and Spielberg and yes. the whole deal. So this is just so exciting. So, all right, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Tony, for those of you who don't know, which I can't believe anyone who listens to this show wouldn't know, but it's a 1977 release, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Roy Neary, played by the great Richard Dreyfus, plays an electric lineman who watches his quiet and ordinary daily life turn upside down after he has a close encounter with a UFO. It won an Oscar. It was nominated for 14 different awards, 39 total for all kinds of different uh, film awards. It is, many people think, the GOAT in this space, uh, no pun intended. So, Tony, let's dive into and bask in the glory and light that is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, let's start from the very beginning. We see Bob Balaban, our aforementioned future guest, in this opening mm-hmm. shot. Um, it, you know, desert, wind. I mean, right away, it reminded me a little bit of the beginning of The Exorcist. You know, you go to the, the Iraq, I think it is, in the beginning of The Exorcist, right? And you're just like... Not, not accidental. That was actually um, <clears throat> on purpose. Spielberg... Uh, went and and the movie initially started with what is arguably my favorite scene of all time in any movie, which is the air traffic control scene. That was initially the start of Close Encounters. And Spielberg felt like after seeing that cut before the movie came out, he was like, you know, it's miss. I, I feel like the opening needs a different something, something more mysterious, something different. And he said he was inspired by the opening of The Exorcist taking place in the Iraq. Come desert. On, I said, swear I to God, something. I didn't know that. Are you serious? I yeah, no, I, I, this is this is this is apparently true. I, I mean, I've read this. I might have even read this in Bob's book because Bob Balaban wrote a a, a, a memoir, a, basically just a diary of making close encounters. Every almost every day he wrote about stuff that happened. And it's a great book and um, chock full of information. And I think I read it there. But yeah, he, he literally went back and they reshot that Sonora Desert opener. Um, where they talk to that old guy who says the sun came out and sang to him. Yes. That wasn't in the original cut. They, that was a that was a later edition that they just kind of added. It was not in the later edition. It was in the original theatrical release. Got it. Of course. Always the way the movie started when it came out. But yeah, that was because of The Exorcist. I watched the theatrical version. And then mm-hmm. I went back last night before I went to bed. And I scanned through the 
special edition version to see any scenes. Same okay. thing. I okay. did exactly the same thing. Okay. And two scenes came out, which we will get to later. They were very obviously not. I'm sure there was a bunch of things that little nuances and stuff that weren't in the mm-hmm. theatrical that are in the special edition. But two you can see easily in a quick scan because they're kind of long scenes. One is a scene between Terry Gar, who plays Richard Dreyfuss's wife and him get into like a fight. And then mm-hmm. the final scene is you actually see Dreyfus get on the craft, which we will get to. So um, all of which to say is I've used this phrase before, but like right away, you know, you're in good hands. And I know it's Spielberg, but I tried to watch it as if I didn't know anything about it. I'm just going to watch this movie with a blank conscious as much as I can and just watch it for what it is in 2021 and see what I think. And right away, it's like, oh, I'm in good hands. This is an incredible epic scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it it starts in a way that you it's a, it's you don't see anything. The first thing you see is just complete white space full of kind of like moving particles. You don't really know what's going on, but it's just kind of a, an off white blur. And in the distance, like somewhere in that mess, you see two lights coming towards you and you don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. You have no idea whether it's a, a, a UFO, a right. car, where you are, what's happening. And slowly the wind kind of dies down enough to see that these are headlights from a car coming at you. And so the first image <clears throat> is mysterious and relates to the subject matter. And that's really, you know, it's so smart when you see. Uh, I mean, that's what makes Spielberg so uh celebrated is 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 the the thought that goes behind every single shot every single moment that's happening um not to say that there's not you know literally hundreds of thousands of other great filmmakers that 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 do that all they, yes. good filmmakers do that but to see it on such a grand scale yes. from such a young filmmaker this came this came out in 77 december of 77 okay. end of 77 okay. so that means they were the scope of this movie means they were working on it for like at least three years before that. So we're going back 76, 75, 74. They were making this movie in 74, which meant Spielberg was conceiving it earlier than that. It's so early, man, to make this film. It's just like, you know, it's, I talk a lot about this, about trying to put yourself in the seat of the times that it came out. It's, it's very easy to be flippant about movies 30 years later. Anybody can do that. That that's a cheap shot, and I I can enjoy that as much as anybody. Fine, but it's 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 dirty pool. It's a cheap shot because you're not you're not putting yourself in the frame of mind of the people that saw it for the first time, and and there's there it was it was such a mind blower. It was so extraordinary to see that level of detail and that kind of film craft in a genre movie, right? At all was a surprise. Something that struck me in that opening scene too is that it sets the table for the fact that, and I wouldn't have been able to conceive of this as a child, it sets the table that in so many ways this movie is a testament and tribute to scientific research and smart people (laughs) and cartographers like Bob Balaban and translators and scientists. It reminded me a little bit like of Apollo 13 where it was a movie lauding the engineers. And in so many ways this movie is that to the very last scene, even it's like a celebration for scientists, right? Does it that is, make sense? and 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 also depicting them realistically, but also, you know, Spielberg clearly thinks these guys are badasses. Yes. They're still nerds, That's... but they're badasses, and there's no 
nerdy thing about there's no like commentary on the fact that they're you know glass glasses wearing like scientists like they're just thought of as remarkably cool interesting dynamic people and uh and it was so much respect to their jobs and what they do another fascinating thing i mean this relates there's also no villains here this is a movie devoid of bad guys there's confrontation there's problems but everybody's got a reason everybody's everybody's motivated by some some need or reason that's that you can understand and it's not it's not a negative thing. It's just, you know, I mean, the government does some stuff in, in this movie that is that is like, wow, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty clandestine. That's, yeah. you know, they kind of intrude a couple of times in very dramatic yeah. ways. Yeah. But they're not the people that, you know, the, 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 the government officials that construct that aren't vilified in the film. Spielberg tries to understand where they're coming from, too. So, yeah, it's just a very it's a mature movie that way. It's it's not juvenile. It doesn't want to pit people against each other or have a big baddie or anything. I mean, that's really kind of what it's about. Every other space movie was about like, this is really going to be bad news until until here. To that point, uh, when the government are doing, quote unquote, bad things when they because if there is a heavy, it's them. But he depicts them in the scientific process with the scientists trying to work it out, right? Exactly. So they're like, well, what if we fake this and say there's a chemical spill? And the scientist's like, well, we got to worry about this and this and this. And they're like processing it together. So yeah, you're right. It's yeah. very astute on that score. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they do some, you know, yeah. they do some bad things, but but you always feel like it's, it's the, 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 there's a purpose behind it and that, and that they're worried about it. That, that it partly comes out of the concern if that they don't do it, something worse could happen. Like, right. you know, they're not vilified. Right. It's like, they're, they're, for example, no spoiler alerts in this because the movie's 50,000 years old. Uh, you know, for example, if Spielberg wanted to make them the bad guys, the straight up bad guys, there are scenes later in the film, they're trying to clear people out of Devil's Tower where they know the UFOs are going to appear for people's safety and protection and to keep it secret and all that. If you want to make them super bad guys, what the government actually does is they drug animals so that it looks like the animals are dying from this poison gas. He would have just had the military slaughter animals, <laughs> right? You know, but they use a gas or, that makes or have them shoot at you know anybody, people. any of the refugees. <laughs> yes, you know, right, like that. Right, right. We would see that in movies today. That definitely. would be normal today, but definitely, yes, a hundred percent. So, yeah, there's a lot going, and then I want to get to what you've mentioned on this podcast before. We talked about, we, we got challenged by a listener to do our favorite paranormal scenes of all time. Like you picked this scene, the air traffic control guys. And so I watched that scene knowing how much it meant to you. And I'm so glad I did because I was thinking what I wrote down was in a way, what he's pulled off here is more difficult than saving private Ryan beach invasion scene saving private ryan would be more logistically difficult of course but what he's done here with no music I, that's something that definitely stood out to me no score he's taken a group of guys doing their job and has made this an edge of your seat unbelievable scene and it never cuts to the pilot seeing the ufo which i was so thankful for which i forgot mm -hmm. i go we're we gonna cut to the pilot here i kind of almost imagined it in my head because i would expect every other director to do that and yeah. no score, no cutaways. Um, and it's why Spielberg is Spielberg. 
to your earlier point. It's why he's Spielberg. Like nobody else, it seems like very few can do that. And like what he does as these air traffic controllers are listening to these pilots, uh, like, all right, how do I show this is really important and different than usual? How does he show that? Does someone say this is really important and different than usual? No, he shows the other four or five air traffic controllers just lean back away from their mm-hmm. station and look over. And I'm going, oh, my mm-hmm. God, this is genius. So you're right. And slow, and then slowly people like a few guys come in with their chairs and they move around this console. Yes. And it, it's the you know, it's it's literally that they're playing against the excitement that makes it so excitement. It's exciting. Testify. All of these guys, some of them look like they were probably not even actors. Yes. Like they look like they, I think he got real air traffic control guys. I mean, it's just very basic. There's no acting going on. It's just it's just this concern over this this what at first feels like a minor detail and then what's really cool about it is that he doesn't also decide to explain to you air traffic control which we also <laughs> make the mistake of doing yes a lot. yes like somebody leans in and goes like that plane is gonna hit that plane 100%. and if it's like there's not nobody does that you're seeing graphics on their screen which you don't can't read and you're seeing their faces and something about how quiet they become <sighs> and how they're they're somehow just kind of stuck in this mystified place about it but to see these official guys just not be able to to figure something out is such a strong statement it's really subtle but i just i don't know that scene kills me it's as good as anything in film i agree with you it's that good and you know the vo i want to talk about the vo because as vo artists that you and i it's, mm. it's been our bread and butter the for pilots. 30 years. The pilots, I'm convinced it's so good. One, one of the pilots in particular, who's got this kind of New York accent, I don't know who that was. My, I was thinking to myself, he might have actually just had an actual pilot say a bunch of in pilot cadence, like real pilot and then just taking mm. stuff because that's how real it sounds. They sound almost bored. Which yes, right? Which I feel like yes, they get they get buzzed by a UFO craft clearly, and you're hearing them talk about that, but they sound almost bored, tired, resigned, and I feel like every other director, again, except save a very few, would have said, "Hey guys, we got to amp it up. A UFO just went by your craft, and it would have ruined it." Totally. Yeah, it's also I think like a subtle thing, but it's also I hear in their voices, um, uh, kind of suppressing a little panic like yes there could be like you could see that like this is really out of the ordinary and they're and they're almost behaving like it's boring or normal because they can't allow themselves Bingo. to make the next it's like step. their training they kicks just, in yeah right and they go uh, yeah and then the re- resignation of like I, I wouldn't know how to report one i don't know what to report and you hear it that you hear like it without them explaining again that you know like do you want to make a report the air traffic controller says who's brilliant that actor is amazing in it he's so good and um there's this pause and the the pilot just goes uh negative uh negative i i wouldn't even know what report to fill out (laughs) like you can hear the bureaucracy and what trouble he'd be in and what a big can of worms this is and it's just better to forget it because i could get fired and i don't want to do that which is what happened to, Mm -hmm. to pilots yep you know, I mean, that was a real thing that happened that that's that until recently has been happening. Apparently now you see some reports about, you know, literally like 
the FAA says, you know, we see stuff out there and they some close calls with planes. Never heard that report before. Everybody, all pirates, the pilots used to get fired for that. Right. So it's just so real. It starts so, oh, and so quiet and real and, and, um, and, and mature. It's yes. not like a kid's movie. It's not like a space movie. Yes. It's not like some sci-fi movie that you're used to seeing. You're, you're suddenly seeing something that that's made with the level of, adult um intensity that that taking of pelham one two three would have been made with or or like the french connection and the crosstalk between the, oh. the guys as they're trying to figure out what's going on the different air traffic controllers are spitting out possibilities to each other while mm-hmm. our lead guy in the scene is kind of conducting mm-hmm. business with the pilots and it crosses over each other a little bit and as an audience member you got to figure out what they're saying and he leaves it up to us it's just it's exquisite <laughs> You're describing with like chocolate and peanut butter for me. That is how much I love crosstalk in films. And what Spielberg does here with actors, I want to rip my own face off. Uh, it's so good. And I get upset because I don't think he has done as good a job with actors since then. And I don't think that um, genre films particularly uh really do show that level of reality of humanity of people living together talking over each other that was a technique in movies that he got from howard hawks and directors from the 30s this isn't new he didn't invent it but he kind of brought it back and made it part of his how he makes movies and deals with actors and it that's more responsible than any one thing to that spielberg quality that's a little hard like what is it that makes his movies a little different that overtalk, that crosstalk with the actors living in those scenes together like that, big reason why. And he does it throughout the film. I, However, and we'll get into some of the little things that didn't didn't work maybe for us, which is very minor. How dare you? I'm sorry. How dare you, sir? But, but, but it's, it's a compliment of him to him is that it's so masterful. And I agree in some of his later work, he, he doesn't maintain that. And I think even in this film, he doesn't maintain that scene is all about restraint and what, in a lot of ways, what he doesn't do. And then I think in the middle acts, he kind of gave in to maybe kind of summer blockbustery stuff. And I feel like if he had kept that level of restraint throughout the film, and again, can't rewrite the movie, but maybe if he saved a lot of the kind of things that we see in the last 15, 20 minutes, if that's kind of like the first we really see of it and the rest of the film is that restrained and that good, it's, it's an, it's a no doubt goat. It is the goat of all goats, but there's just some uh, things yeah. in the middle that to me uh, didn't have that okay. same, there's didn't some, have the same level of, of restraint. There's some nits we could pick, I guess about certain things, but you know, I'm going to, I'm kind of going to disagree in a way because I, I feel like I saw this, this movie came out in 77. I was 10 years old. I saw it at the Ziegfeld in New York city at as, as a 10 year old. If that, if the movie you're talking about, had been the one I'd saw at 10, I, I don't know if I would have had the same reaction. True. This movie is designed for children's minds to view the adult world. And that, to me, is a place you have to kind of be in when you see it. That's, that's the thing. Some of those steps where they get a little bit big, maybe, and a little bit, like they seem to be trying to entertain us a little bit, maybe, yeah. with some of the choices. And I, I, I look at them now as an adult, and I go... I may have needed that as it like as a kid, I needed to see some of the adult, some of the adults acting ridiculous. I needed to see some 
of that dynamic, see the aliens early on um, to, to get me that entranced as a 10 year old. I, I don't know that if it was, a, if it was a more adult film without some of those broader moments Fair. that it would have played to me and I would still be thinking about it this Fair. way. I might've come to it later and been like, right. wow, this like is us, the greatest us film time, snobs but... would love it. But yeah, right. I got you. Right. I got I mean, you. This, this is also like wizard of Oz. This is right. also working. This is like a magic act about children and, and the magic of cinema. And it's also about that too. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was, more, if, I don't know. I guess it was, I, I well, let's get into it. So what, there's really only one thing that kind of bothered me in that. I don't, I don't mind the ice cream scene. I don't mind that it's an obvious set. I really don't like I, that is part of movie magic to me. I kind of like that. It almost looked artificial. It gave a kind of a seventies magic. I dug all that. No problem. My only problem was, and you can talk me off the ledge here and it's very the ice cream set. You're talking, sorry. You're talking about the Hill. Yes. Yes. When the kid, the yeah. kid yells ice cream and the UFOs go by, yes. I don't mind any of that. I think it's great. I think the, everything's great. The, my only problem was the scene and this felt Here's why it felt inconsistent with the, with the narrative, with the point of the film. And I had a little trouble jiving that. And that is the scene with the mother, uh, played by Ralphie's mom from Christmas story. Melinda Dillon, one of the great Uh, Spielberg moms. She's fantastic. I just, every time I see Christmas story, I just think of her in close encounters. I can't believe it's (laughs) the same woman. I can't believe it. I just got a Christmas story t-shirt, which I'll wear in the show. (laughs) I can't believe believe it's her. But anyway, like, you know, anyway, uh, she does seventies put upon mom, like nobody's business. She's just phenomenal. And, uh, but there's a scene with her and the baby, the iconic scene, which is incredibly visually, he opens the door, the orange light. I mean, that's the image of the film on posters and stuff like that. One of them. Um, it just felt a little inconsistent because the way it's portrayed is very um, like they're evil coming to get him. And now you can you can talk me off the ledge, but tell me it's it's the child's perspective, so it's scary to the child. I don't know, but it just felt to me like it was it was thrown in there to give us a big summer blockbuster scare, and it didn't jibe with the rest of the film. It was it stood out to me in this viewing as Spielberg kind of giving into. We need that. We need a big blockbuster summer scene here. Like that's scary. And the thing's going to light up and they're going to unscrew the floor things and come through the floor. I just like, Ugh. and then, and then when we meet them, they're these benevolent creatures that are all about light and music. So it just seemed oh, that's the only thing I felt a little uneasy about. Okay. I would argue with you then that for me, uh, I would rather tune it so that we're not quite so, sure that they're totally benign at the end rather than soft pedal that middle part because fine i I, you know i i think i because we both heard about abduction experiences that are terrifying yes terrifying right to all involved not just the kids like to everybody and i don't know that you know I, i i think there i think what this plays like is an amalgam of every abduction story all packed into one moment yes so I don't think probably all of those things happened in an abduction. And there were plenty of things that they don't show that we've heard later happen in abduction scenarios. Yes, It feels like any one of those things might've happened. Yep. Lights coming in, smoke, you know, weird anomalous things happening to your, to your hardware, to your, to your appliances. Yeah. Right. You know, um, it's, you know, stuff flying around because perhaps of anti-gravity, it might not be because they're, you know, villainous. Right. Um, 
exploring their house, yep. you know, entities that you can't see maybe being in there with you. All of those things we've heard before. It's just that they're all happening in this one scene. So right. maybe that's what you're picking up. Yeah, it was it's just, just inconsistent like, with the, too much. it's it's right. I, I love the not knowing what their motivation is. And let's be scary with that. But here's my point. I, I guess I could say it like this. The truck scene with Richard Dreyfus is just as scary. Actually, way more so. But there's no purposeful cinematic sinisterism put in it. The scene with the child and the mom is definitely like, this is poltergeist. These things are bad. They're coming to get them. And that's never justified at the end. Why they sneak into the house with that smoke and the red lights and she's screaming. Like, I just felt like he could have done what he did in the truck scene with that scene with the mom and trusted us that it would trust himself that it would still work. I would have preferred, again, I I love that sequence too much to want to trim it or touch it. I would rather have the, the, I would rather have the, the, the perceived possible threat, you know, to continue through the end of the movie. I would have rather seen him getting onto that spaceship, not a hundred percent knowing how safe he was, but doing it anyway, not because I want them, I want us to think of the aliens as dangerous, but that I think the unknowable the unknowable quality of it, it was really well represented by, by that, by that sequence. And then I got that from the truck scene. I was just as scared. Like if it was only, if it only got as dramatic as that truck scene with no evil music and no light, there was no score on that truck scene. There was no score. I was just as, I would have been just as scared Mm. as what was to come. And he, and I felt like he didn't trust that maybe. Uh, maybe you're right. No, maybe you're right. I, I, I kind of look at that more as like the, you know, there's also a fairy tale buried in here. Um, this, this is, a, you know, this is as much about Spielberg's real interest in UFOs and the lore and the research that he did, which was considerable. I mean, arguably he probably did as much research as any, as Alan Hynek did, but, um, he's also making a movie about movies and he's also making a movie about Walt Disney. And he's also making a movie about nostalgia for childhood and he's also making a a Grimm's fairy tale and to have a a, to have a Grimm's fairy tale that's going to work for children just as well as it will for an adult I think that it was a really bold thing to have that child so endangered and in such a terrifying situation it respected the children it respected the kids enough to go you can handle this you know this is going to freak you out but somewhere knowing that like Grimm's fairy tales Kids being endangered and showing them what that danger is was like an essential part of those those fairy tales. So I, I okay, I, I I I don't know how to think about that. Again, you're picking on my movie that I I can't no, uh, I can't allow. That. No, I'm loving on it. I just that it was never just like why did they infiltrate in such a scary way if if all they do is smile yeah. and play music and shine lights and let people go avenge. But I, I agree with your point. I love for the whole first the whole movie until the end, not knowing the motivation. But I just think that was captured well enough in that truck scene, which I want to talk about that truck scene. Okay. Well, okay. It goes in my, t- all right. So we were asked a few weeks ago by a fan, top paranormal scenes of all time. This bumped out one of my M night Shyamalan's this, the truck scene goes in my top three paranormal scenes of all time, dude. Okay. So I want to know from you, you, I'm sure you know how he shot that. Because again, it's it's all practical effects. It looks like there's some sort of weird magnetic thing going through his truck. Things are flying. And then there's like this ADR going on where you can hear Richard Dreyfus making noise of noises of kind of subtle terror, breathing, grunting. Um, 
but it's not matching his mouth. You, it's definitely ADR. And I don't know if that was purposeful, but if it, if it was, it's masterful. And if it wasn't, who cares? Because what it gives mm-hmm. it is this dreamlike, which I'm sure in real life, when you experience one of these things, it's like you're in some sort of time vortex. It's terrifying. Then the light that shines on the street in silence oh. is fucking, it's, it's again, why he's Spielberg. I mean, that is it. It's he captures the the awe inspiring moments of of encountering the unknown better than any <sighs> filmmaker, pretty much. Yes. I mean, Kubrick, I think you could argue is a grandmaster of yes. that stuff. Just absolutely. Ma- I mean, yes, uh, let's, let's start that again. He's not a grandmaster. No, he is a grandmaster. Nutshell. Let's him. keep that in. What's nutshell on Kubrick? <laughs> No, he's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, this is very, this is nobody, I, I think why, I mean, I've seen other filmmakers try this stuff, like Bob Zemeckis has done movies similar to this and where the awe of encountering the unknown, but I think it comes down to the fact that Spielberg's a true believer. Great point. I just think that Spielberg, you know, uh, I mean, not to get too grandiose about it. And there's other filmmakers as a cinema lover that I love more. But did this guy ever come to Earth to make movies? Like, this is mm-hmm. one thing he came here to do. Yeah. And uh, his abilities as, I mean, he was tw- 27 when he made That's this movie? That's sick. That's sick. I mean, he was tw- he was 24 when he made Jaws, That's which is the other sicker. favorite movie of mine. And by the way, there's so many parallels to Jaws scenes. You know, that yeah. that air traffic control scene is so the town it's, meeting scene in Jaws, right? Yeah, There's so many parallels. Absolutely. Well, also, actually, another scene I love is the is the press conference scene in yes. Close Encounters, yes. which mirrors a lot of Jaws, too. Yes. Um, it, you know, I mean, just think about this for a second, people. Jaws, 24 years old. 24 years old, he made Jaws, which blew the industry completely apart. That's before Star Wars came out, man. Well, 77 Star Wars and Close Encounters came out the same year, but he'd made Jaws before this. Learned so much about that, about making movies and working with actors because the shark didn't work. If that shark worked, Spielberg might be a, a footnote. Amazing. He really might be because it forced him to have to make scenes with actors interesting and exciting. And because the shark wasn't working, they had to rework the whole movie. During the shoot, it, it goes to show you that age, if you're connected, if you're tapped into whatever it is that's created, look at all the musical artists that died by 27 yeah. and look what they yeah. created before age 27. So, yeah, there's something special. He was special. He is special. I mean, to think of to think of having the the chutzpah to like go, I'm going to make this movie. The only thing you could relate it to was 2001 and nobody <laughs> that was such an outlier to anything anybody could think of making again i mean and then to do it and to go i'm gonna make one like 2001 but that kids would really dig yes for like yes combine disney and that what would happen i'm like let's have fun with it let's have fun god what a and you talk about another miracle of the shark not working and that is richard dreyfus in this film and we can talk a little bit about performances you know i was reading uh that he offered it to you know every big studly star of the day and then ended up with richard dreyfus and thank god he did because Richard Dreyfus adds a playfulness to this, a quirkiness, innocence, 
Um, and I think if you had the studly actor who was working his way through it as a lineman, it just wouldn't have had it the charm and, and, and would have destroyed it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other people they were thinking of were, well, Jack Nicholson, they offered it to Nicholson. He would have, been okay. <laughs> he would have made it work. You know what? He would have wrecked it because, Maybe. because Nich- it, it, I think what's, what to me, what Dreyfus brings to the, to the table every time is that he is one of the greatest everyman actors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is not, I mean, he's adorable, yeah. I guess, but he's not handsome. No, he's not, right. you right. know, he's kind of lumpy yep. and not, you know, he's not like particularly good looking. He's not tall. Right. He doesn't look forceful. Right. He just looks like a guy who's got a lot of internal stuff going Something's on, but going no, but yeah. he have, he's like, working great through life stuff. Yeah. 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 It's great. And I think he so convincingly creates this suburban guy. Yes that I can't imagine Jack Nicholson even touching that. Like he's Nicholson would be the crazy guy down the block, but to begin with, there'd be nowhere to go. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, you know, anyway, it's, I just can't imagine it with anybody. Did any, else. yeah. So like, I'm glad you brought that up. So like the other little thing I went, eh, just a little, again, just nitpicking here because All why right, go on? Just, just to get it over well, with. No, did you, Rip the did, you, off, did you, you know? in the rewatch, did you have any like, when he is going nuts and throwing the stuff in the house, did did all that work for you to go like, oh, maybe we split that in half? It would have been okay. Do you no, know, you know what's interesting is that, um, yeah, I do, there. I've had, I have, a, I totally know what you mean. I'm being a little facetious about like picking on the movie <laughs> because, to be honest, I've I've loved this movie like like it's a part of me and a part and it's a part of my life since I was ten years old. Right. It was a gateway for me to be interested in filmmaking, to want to be a movie maker, to be interested in UFOs, to be a Spielberg, you know, fanatic as a kid. It it really gave me so much, like as a piece of art, you know. Um, in many respects, it may have been one of the things that helped. I mean, not to be too like really dramatic about it, but like it kept me going. Like it, it was one of those pieces of art that made it worth it for me to get up in the morning when I was depressed sometimes, oh, you know. It. And and so. Um, I have a lot of deep feelings about it, but like anything that I've not I've seen this movie. I mean, how many times do you think you've seen it? Not a lot, Tony. I mean, I've seen really? scenes of it hundreds of times, but sat through and watched it from beginning to end and really analyzed it. I, I mean, I, I had to conservatively put my viewings at 20. Wow. You know, I mean, that's literally, I mean, I was conservative. Wait a second. What's that behind you? Is that Devil's Canyon behind you? What are you doing? <laughs> I'm I'm losing it. I'm losing it. He's actually built <laughs> out of mashed potatoes. Yeah. A train set out of mashed Poor potatoes. Poor Amelia. Um, let's talk about some of the female performances in this film, oh. which, again, would be the only nitpick I have is that I wanted more Terry Garr. Oh, this is yeah. like, is the, her performance in this Dude. movie. I don't know why she should have won like every Oscar Dude. that they had okay. that year. So I wrote down, ask Tony favorite scenes and we know that. And I was going to like favorite lines and all that crap. But I wrote my truck. The truck is my favorite scene. Cause it's just so incredible. But I wrote a close tie is a literal. And this is so Spielbergian and it's so genius. And you're going to, I think you're going to go like, Yes. It's when at right before the press conference, they're in like a waiting room. Richard Dreyfus sees the little kid's mom, who he clearly has like a thing with. And Terry Gar sees that. And she mm-hmm. just looks over th- over the top of her sunglasses at that mother. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, I like, I'm getting choked up talking about it. And like Spielberg just leaves it at that. She never confronts him about it. And that look says, what the f*** going on with my husband? Who is that chick? They clearly got something going. Like it says so much and it's so masterful. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I want like five more scenes of Terry Gar. <laughs> it's, it's a smart, it's such smart acting because it is the moment the dial with no dialogue that sets up why she literally leaves, takes the kids. And Bingo. Leaves. It's a, sl- it's, it's a death not... by a million cuts, right? Yep. And it's, you know, what I love about the movie and I love about her is he also doesn't vilify her. It would have been so easy to make her a, a, a an awful caricature yes. of a shrewish yes, wife. It would justify him kissing. Cliche. It would justify him kissing yeah. the girl at the end. Right. But he present like Terry Gar uh, just is, she's, she's lovely she's she's attractive and and cares about her family she's a little maybe high strung like a lot of people in spielberg movies are but she puts up with so much and she's willing to go so far for her husband and like be so you know she doesn't get it but she's trying to and i i think that's so moving and it's so great that he he spielberg wrote that for her and allowed her to inhabit that part and not be a villain for him because it'd be so easy to be like, well, cause he leaves the family, yes. right? He goes off on his adventure and he never really turns back. You'd think that a lesser filmmaker would feel to justify that he yes. had to make home life off. Absolutely. He didn't restrain nothing wrong there. They don't have enough money. They're obviously like, you know, you know, blue collar struggling a little bit. Um, making ends yep. meet is a thing. But there's love there. They care about each other. The kids love their dad. Like they're, it's really, it's really powerful, you know. And 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 you know, this I don't want to talk too much because I'm told that I talk too much. Um, By Terry Gar, <laughs> she actually called. She <laughs> she she, like, she left us a message on our. Uh, She's like, I don't work a lot anymore because I don't really enjoy it. But could you please tell Tony? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I should just cut my losses. Interesting tidbit. Okay. The mashed potato scene. I know it was a favorite of yours. Um, I was, I was going through Bob Balban's memoirs about the movie again. Now, you know, talk about Terry Gar Spielberg, uh, gave her a catalog and said, go buy, go get your clothes, go get your entire wardrobe on your own. Wow. She's like, okay. She shopped for her wardrobe. She shopped for the furniture in that house. That's her list that she made that's on the refrigerator to do for family chores. She was so invested and he gave, you know, Spielberg gave her that, that gift of like, no, this is your job. You, you inhabit this world. You make this house a real house, you know, and you can just see like you give a good actor like that the keys to the car just watch what they do she's unbelievable in it she has a moment when he wakes her up out of a deep sleep to go look at the ufos and she's asleep and she just is like no no i laugh so hard every time at at her uh readings and she's funny she's She's charming about it no choice no choice is obvious and pat you know she even jokes they're out on the street and she goes don't you think I'm handling this well? I mean, that's totally brilliant. And she is. Which is and what she my kisses wife, him. And she, right. My wife would say that, something like that. You know, it's like people aren't yes. caricatures. They're not. Right. Uh, right. I'll tell you. Like, I, I don't understand you, but I love right. you anyway. Yes. That should be the our 
tagline on this podcast. I don't understand you, but I love you anyway, Tony. Um, I wrote down, this is George Bailey wonderful life scene when he wrecks the the model and yells at the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, keep practicing, totally. Jimmy. I told you to keep practicing. Like, like that is totally. a nod to this. It's just an amazing scene. It's, it's um, something that struck me that I wrote down right here. And I just, I just want to bring it up is like, it was a little freaky watching. I have to bring it up and I'm not going to get political <laughs> at all, but um, I got to note it. Cause I, it's just so striking is living through this pandemic with the whole fucking masks thing. And then that scene where they all, the government is wearing their masks as a ploy to get people out of there. And then as soon as they drive the people out of there, they take off the masks. Now think what you want about masks and all that. I don't give a but it was just striking in this day and age to see a government entity represented in that way uh, during this pandemic. It was quite striking. I was like, wow, that, mm-hmm. that scene had a whole new meaning right now. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, there, yeah, it touches a lot of weird buttons. This movie, it really, it, it, it covers so much ground yeah. and I know we're going to get into like, I think it ne- next week, uh, there's, there's a lot to discuss and, and pick apart vis-a-vis the actual, paranormal aspects yes. of this movie. I, I think we should get into that more n- next Yes, week, we have maybe. to talk about Dr. Dr. Alan Hynek, who is in this film, was an advisor. He mm-hmm. ran Project Blue Book. And, you know, we've mentioned it before. Yeah. What did he... I got the sense, for example, watching that final scene, that that's happened somewhere in the desert. That that has already happened somewhere in the desert to the, to the, to the voiceover of the whoever that was running it going, isn't it a beautiful night? Like, who would think to say that to a group of scientists about to see a UFO? It's like, th- this hasn't been done before. And I think Alan Hynek told Spielberg exactly how it went it, down. It is so chillingly prescient. This movie either taught people how to do that stuff, or it knew how people did it and just was reenacting how yes. this stuff really happens. Because it's latter. just simply chilling how much um, detail... That that you just I can't imagine a twenty five year old writer no. writing a screenplay and even knowing enough about it to write no. that level of of mystery and clarity and government speak and how this would happen. This is and this isn't even a normal government issue. Right. So you're seeing the fact that they're at the edge of their understanding That's too. Right. So it, it's and just think about so this. Spot on. Think about this. To portray it as it's portrayed, and this goes back to my very one of my very first points that this is a celebration of scientists and thinkers. That that last scene is portrayed not scary, not what the hell is going to happen, but a celebration of of their work and science, just like what you see when you watch NASA do a launch of a rover. They high five. They don't cry. Yep. They don't go like, what's going to happen? Oh my God. They high five. It's a celebration. And to portray it like that, to have the forethought to portray it like that tells me this guy, J. Allen Hynek, was standing in the desert and watched something like this happen. Oh my God, all this work, we contacted them. We figured it out. We figured out how to talk to them. Like, I really, truly believe that. Might make me crazy, but I do. Um, well, I, why would that make you crazy after the, the, the disclosures of the last two years? I mean, how, how could that, you know, I mean, I think this is the, this is a really key point. Yeah. Okay. Two years ago, you'd be crazy to now, um, you're just making, you're just connecting dots that have already been out that are already out there to that point. Perfect segue to how I want to end. 
your life? I could end my life right now and be wicked happy because I love this episode so much. <laughs> I think we killed it. Uh, I want to end with this. To that exact point we both just made, the tie between what might be going on in the real world and how it's portrayed on film and television. And that's exactly what this podcast is about. This, 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 this nexus, this connection is, is perfectly exemplified in this film. I'm going to play you a piece of sound from the film, and then I'm going to play you a piece of sound from real life. You tell mm. me if you hear any... Uh, Tell me if you hear anything that sounds similar. So I'm going to play you a clip from a 40-some-odd-year-old film about the topic, and this is a group of law enforcement guys chasing the UFOs. Jesus, look at that. Look at those suckers. Okay. This is not from a movie. Sound a little familiar, Tony? Did I lose you? Whoa. Oh, I lost you for a second. Did you hear the clip? Okay. I did. That's the Tic Tac. That's the guy responding to Tic Tac. I mean, how similar. You have a law enforcement. It's freaky, man. I mean, it's like the same clip. This is great. So uh, I just think. And I've lost Tony. The, the CIA does not want us broadcasting this. I don't blame him. <laughs> so, I, what is happening? <laughs> I've got you recording right now in the pocket. Well, we're well over an hour, so maybe we should wrap it up. Oh, dude, you know what it is? What? My my internet just went down. I love it. Sorry, I got to sorry, I got to shut down by the powers that be. Oh, you're back. You just popped back on. Oh, all right. Amazing. (laughs) Okay. So there you go. So thank you, Tony. uh, And thank you for listening. Remember, we're at Rated Paranormal. Follow us on social media. Uh, Leave us a message. Visit us on our homepage. Well, you know the whole deal. The the announcer's going to say it. Who is me? What? That was very meta. Yeah. Yeah. Spell it out. No, spell it out. Say it again. Do it in hand signals. They might not have missed. Okay, what the hand we'll signals? No, go week. ahead. Yeah, I know that was never justified either, which is I don't understand. Well, it's the I, I don't understand, but we'll talk. Next I week. think that feeds maybe into Bob. The, maybe Bob can clear. Maybe it up for us. I think it feeds into the point that we're making. Like that level of detail, that level of specificity that's not justified. Where did that come from? And yeah. has that been yeah. used before in real life? I say, I... yay! Hell yes! Hell yeah! Oh, I'll never do that again. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Rated P for Paranormal. Please rate, review, and share. It really does make a difference. For more information, to participate, and even donate, go to our main page, anchor.fm slash Rated Paranormal. On social media, we're at Rated Paranormal. All music is by Andrew Goldens Jr. You can find him on Instagram at KidRiga or go to therocketscience.bandcamp.com. This podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by Maddie Blake and Anthony Arkin. If I could nutshell it. What is happening? (laughs) 